Welcome to Ahad Exit. I'm Aram Chavez here with Michael Zayas. We are talking about the lifestyle and the pains of being an entrepreneur. A venture cap. Hello, everybody. And this an investor. And we're here to talk to you about the sacrifices and the rewards of taking your aha moment, your dream, all the way to throughout. I'm Aaron A lot of you guys on pretty high. And so I thought, well, why don't I just, why don't we just talk about it and give everybody the opportunity to really listen and, and then ask questions. And the first topic that I, I brought up was the TAM. And a lot of people aren't too familiar with the TAM. And if you are, then fantastic. You can add to on the comments, you can add to the, uh, your experience and, and your thoughts. But this is really about making sure that everybody understands the CFO function of a startup and or a you know a, a growth equity type company, and, and just to jump in, so you teach uh, at Arizona State University uh, in the engineering school, but um, for those that are interested in on the business side, and then also at Thunderbird Global School of Management, and so this is content that you would be unpacking over a semester. Yeah. Right. So right. we're going to we're going to we're going to give you nuggets, as many nuggets as we can, the really hardcore stuff as quickly as as we can. And then just uh, explain a little bit about BMC Capital and how this comes into play in, in everyday life so that people understand sort of the value behind understanding these concepts and how you can apply it and how you can get paid to uh, be the one that. Uh, is responsible in in managing uh, yeah, so, this in a business. So BMC Blue Morphos Capital is a advisory financial firm, and what we do is we complement the CFO typically in helping to execute the CEO's vision. Right. So most CFOs, for those of you who are out there, I don't want to disparage accountancy in any way, but most CFOs are glorified accountants, right? And so they don't really understand the treasury function of the business as it pertains to capital raising, as it pertains to valuation, putting together decks and and presenting to both the debt equ- debt markets and equity markets, those players. That's and, what we do. And and so to to add another layer onto that, you know, in in my experience, uh, accountancy often is backward looking. Yeah, it's history, right? They're and, they're historians. And and they're reconciling and they're bringing everything up and and that that helps you so then you can budget and look forward, but sometimes um you need finance guys that are able to to see and create value and figure out what future growth is going to look like. And and sometimes that's not in a CFO's skill set. Um so there arise opportunities where outsourced investment teams or, or uh, CFOs can come into play. And that's some of what we do at BMC Capital. And it's really um, working to put a vision into reality through uh, a financial plan that, that marries with a business plan and doing research so that you can see what's probable, uh, not, not only possible, but what's probable 
and and create milestones to get there. Yeah, and and one of the one of the things and one of the reasons I should say why we're doing this podcast is because we're talking about things that venture capitalists, investment bankers, merchant bankers, family offices, chief investment officers want to see, right? So we're not just talking about stuff just to hear ourselves talk. Yeah, and and also, you know, the game has changed a lot um in maybe the last 20, 30 years. Previously, a lot of this was only done by corporate raiders and by big Wall Street groups and private equity groups, um, and they would come into businesses that were less sophisticated yeah. and and do some of these things and buy at a discount and turn it around and, and make a lot of money. And if you're a business owner or if you're an entrepreneur, if you can already have some of these skill sets with you, then um, not only does it allow you to be more profitable – but it might also ward off um, some other partners or or groups that might come in to to offer this to you, um, where you have to either dilute or sell the business or sell some of the business. You know, for for any one of these reasons, these are just good skills to have. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, what we're going to be doing, everybody, is you're going to wear the CFO hat whenever you listen to one of our podcasts. You're going to put the CFO hat on and within a very short period of time, you'll probably be more qualified philosophically anyways, and understanding what the CFO function actually is. And you'll probably, uh, you, you would be able to, the hope is that you'd be able to understand and, and then of course, um, execute on the teachings. So let's jump into it. So the TAM, so here's the TAM total addressable market. And I, I, I simplify everything. So the total addressable market really is from the bottoms up, not a top down. Top down would be okay. And, and on LinkedIn, my LinkedIn, I, I give the example of a salsa company, 213. And 213, by the way, is a former student of mine who launched his Kickstarter off of one of my courses. So really, Casey Lawton. And I'm going to give a shout out to him, but uh, but the two one three salsa is out there in the marketplace. It's in the grocery stores. He did a Kickstarter, and basically, uh, the TAM for salsa might be. And I give an example, and I don't know what it is. I didn't research it, but I put one trillion dollars globally. I think everybody should have salsa. By the way, and, and if and if you're not, as my as my son says, if you don't if you don't, then you're sus. You're sus. If you don't, if you don't have, if you don't have salsa in your, in your fridge, you're sus. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, they, let's say the TAM for salsa is $1 trillion. And, and what we get oftentimes are companies that say, well, if we just get, you know, 1% of that, then, you know, and it's like, well, no. (laughs) <laughs> you're not going to get one percent. And the analogy that I like to make is when you go to the mall and you walk out and you get to your car and there's a there's a flyer on your car and and uh, and what do you do with that flyer? You just ball it up and throw it away. Yeah, you ball it up. You put it on the other windshield of the next car, right? No. And so so and that's the top down. That's the way. That's it's very amateur thinking, very novice thinking, and their idea is. Hey, there's going to be ten thousand people at the mall today, and so if I just get one percent of those, 
you know, we've got a ton of customers, right? And, and, uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I might not be in the demographic for a foam bath, uh, you know, party. Right. And you see those and, and it's like, you're just wasting money and wasting time. And, and so that's the thought though, is, Hey, we can capture 1% or 2% of everybody that's there. And that's not marketing. That's really just, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but it's not marketing. What we need to do is we need to take a look at who our relevant market is and our relevant market are going to be people that are willing to pay for this salsa. $7 is not cheap, right? And not everybody is going to want to be able to pay for that salsa. And that's the one thing you guys need to understand is not everybody is your customer. This is not the Walmart. You're as a startup and a small business, we have been indoctrinated into believing that everyone is our customer. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, you know, is is, is Ferrari, look at phrase is, is, does Ferrari look at everyone as their customer? Absolutely not. And so having a premium product means that you're going to have to start marketing and segmenting to that group. So a $7 can of salsa is, is expensive and there are a lot of people willing to pay. I am one of those. I mean, I I, I do not like eating uh, cheap salsa, right? It just it ruins. You don't love pace. I know. I know. Made in New York. Made in New Jersey. <laughs> no. <laughs> so so here we are, looking at our tam from the bottoms up, and we say, okay, well, let's look at our local market first, if it's a physical product, right? Let's look at our local market and see how many people we might be able to get to buy. And maybe we go to a farmer's market, right? And start testing it out there. Because people that go to farmer's markets, you know, they, things are more expensive. They're fresh. They're, uh, the, the produce, everything is, is a little bit more expensive. And so that's how you're going to do your beta, you know, you got to test it out there and, and then you worry about scale. And I think that's the, the issue that we see is everybody believes that everyone is our customer or for you to make money, you've got to be able to sell, uh, you buy, you got to get this app and everybody's going to pay you a dollar a year and you're going to have, uh, you know, a million dollars in your pocket very quickly. And that's such a, another, it's just such a novice. That's why I don't like apps in particular when it comes to startups. So that's your TAM. Your TAM is going to be the number of customers, your relevant customers times the price that that you ha- are charging. And your price needs to be premium. And and here's, he, I, I, I want to bring up two key points. Uh, G&D, I call them G&D. And this is, these, you need to make your customers feel these exact two emotions at the exact time. G and D guilty and delighted at the same, same time. If you can make your customers feel guilty and delighted at the exact same time, you're cooking with gas. Yeah. Now, and why guilty? And then why delighted? Guilty because you're paying a premium. You're paying more for, think about buying a Mac or an iPhone. 
I mean, I, I have them, and when I buy it, I know that I'm overpaying. But when I get home and unwrap that, I am so delighted, right? You got to make your customers feel guilty and delighted at the same time. And that's the customer, that's the relevant customer that I just referenced. The pricing needs to be premium. There's the guilt. The quality needs to be there. And that's the delighted part. So so to do a summary of what you've just unpacked with Tam, um, it, would it be fair to say that you really need to know your customer yeah. and that most people stop too soon on dialing down um, what the actual buyer pool is. And because of that, there's huge inefficiencies in the route that they take to getting to their end user. Yeah, that's right. And so... Uh, so you nailed it. And and now that leads us back into pricing again, right? So I, I a lot of people think that they need, and this comes from your econ classes that I'm trying to somehow rewind a little bit and, and, and really get everybody to understand the economics behind a business. First of all, I, and I, I'm going to go off tangent here because I'm, I'm, I'm a little uh, uh, perturbed at at how we've indoctrinated the entire world here, which is equilibrium, right? And that's the intersection of supply and demand, right? And and the and they typically give you the ice cream cone model, and that's relevant here in Arizona, especially because I love ice cream. But but y- you buy the exact amount of ice cream, and you have the exact amount of demand in customers that makes you efficient. You're not buying any more raw materials and you're selling everything that you've got. And at the end of the day, it's perfect, right? And that's exactly where you don't want to be in business. And But in econ, that's what they teach you about. I'm teaching disequilibrium, which is – and if and if, and if if there's ever an econ economist or econ professor that has a business, I mean, please uh, shoot them our way because – because I, I think they would agree with me that that we want more demand than supply, right? Think of Ferrari again. You want more demand, and that allows you to increase your price point. It allows you, and this is the CFO hat, it allows you to predict the future, right? It also allows you to raise capital. And and you you will also get broader distribution and scalability. If you have disequilibrium, and again, that is being having more demand than there is supply, and that's as simple as it gets. But in econ, you know, it's always about equilibrium and the perfect amount of supply to to demand, and and it just doesn't fly if you have a business. I, I just want to add a thought in here because you said something about being able to predict the future, and I was thinking about this one day, you know, especially I think. As you start getting older, you realize there's so much stuff that's outside of your control, outside of the business's control. But the best of your ability to predict the future is, you know, it it can hinge on how good your financial plan is, even though nothing goes 100 percent to plan. But just having a plan already ensures that you're uh, more likely to stick to it and that it's more likely to happen. So that's one of the ways that you can start to uh, predict the future is having a good, a really tight plan with 
with goals, milestones, and then where it's communicated and people understand it and they keep it in front of them, but also uh, with your agreements. So it could be contracts. Like we work with a, with a group that has a bunch of these take or pay contracts and they can pretty accurately project out for the next couple years what their sales are going to be, at least a baseline. And, and then there's a framework that you can work in from and you can always go back to that framework, right? Right. And, and retool little things here and there. But for the most part, you know, you've now got kind of a plan that you can work on. And I know working in entrepreneurial settings or starting a business or even starting a new job, one of the most uncomfortable things about it is not knowing yes. what's in store. But if you do some of these best practices, and if you have a good dialed in picture of who your customer is and, and some of these other things that um, Aram's going to talk with us about, you know, these are all, all tools in the tool belt that help you be more confident and more secure in what you're doing. It gives you purpose. It feeds back to um, your ability to have some level of predictability in an unpredictable world. Yeah, that's right. And we've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable, right, as an entrepreneur. And that. And I want to just touch something Michael said really quickly about contracts. For everybody out there, a contract is a minimum. So when I sign contracts, when Michael and I sign contracts, that's the minimum. We always exceed how lawsuits happen. Lawsuits usually are broach, breached because you have not, or somebody has not, I should say, met that minimum requirement. And so for me, I've always tried to overperform the contract that keeps you out of any litigation as an FYI. Anyway, so let's jump back into the the pricing. So the pricing needs to be premium. The reason being is you have no brand equity you have no distribution, you have no money, you have no people, you don't have that bandwidth. And if you price your product at a discount, what is it? Let's say you go to the grocery store and you're looking at for salsas and you see a salsa and it may be the best salsa in the world, but you don't know that and you see it priced below pace. What are you thinking? It's not going to be very good. Cheap. Yeah, you're thinking cheap, right? And so you need to price your salsa at or above everybody else. And it's as simple as that. That's where you need to be in the pricing model. And people, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be like, well, no, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm I'm in that category yet. But there are going to be a lot of people like me that say, yes, I'm willing to pay for that. I'm willing to try this. And if it's good, then I just hit the holy grail of salsa, right? And so, so... The price is incredibly important because that leads me to the next topic, which is contribution margin. Okay, so contribution margins essentially are the percentage of your gross profit, we'll say, for a particular product, right? So let's say that let's say that uh, this salsa is selling. Uh, we got a, a super premium salsa for ten uh, ten dollars a unit, ten dollars a can, right? And we sell a thousand cans of this. That's ten thousand dollars. So that's our sales, right? And then you subtract out your variable expenses, and variable expenses are are you know raw materials, um, labor things that you can't necessarily predict. Maybe there's overtime in that, 
And um, and so labor can oftentimes be predictable, but sometimes it'll eat you up alive, right? So you subtract out your variable expenses. Let's say that's $6,000. Then basically you have a contribution margin of 40%, right? So you take the 10,000 minus the 6,000 gives you somewhat of a gross profit, we'll say, or contribution margin of $4,000. But we like to turn things into percentages with contribution margins. So that's 40%. I would like it if you had contribution margins on your products or services in the 40 to 60% range. And tech companies, that's for that's for a physical product. Tech companies are in that 60% and up range, right? So that's the that's the beauty about having a tech company is you don't have the cap x you don't have all of the expenditures that you that that say a physical product does so their contribution margins are significantly higher so just to recap we got our tam which is the relevant customers willing to pay a premium price for the product that pricing is going to be premium because we need to separate ourselves from everybody else. And that pricing is also going to lead us into the contribution margin formula, which is essentially your sales minus your variable costs, gives you that percentage. And we need to understand that the the better we do with those customers, the more disequilibrium we will have and the more predictability in the future of, of what our our sales are going to be. And that based off of that, we can then start looking at OPEX and CAPEX and, and all those things. Because you've been using the salsa example, can you um, tell us what a general contribution margin would be for salsa? Like what would be some of the variable costs, for example? So a great question. So all the raw material inputs, so everything from the glass and the aluminum lids to the and I'm just maybe I'm going to give out a, a formula here of what I think salsas: onions, tomatoes, cilantro, uh, jalapenos, maybe some habaneros. Um, you know, all of the uh, all water, salt, wa- yeah, maybe, water, maybe salt, garlic, or some garlic, salt powder. Yeah. Um, I, I'm starving now. What are you doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're gonna go to we're gonna go to a Mexican restaurant right now. Uh, and with that said. I appreciate everybody's time, and now we're cooking with gas.